You're listening to In Conversation from the Educational Freedom Institute. Five different uh, streaming uh, locations. Um, It's the beginning of the uh, stream. So if you want to share it on any of your social media profiles on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter, um, go ahead and give that a retweet. Um, Robert, what's what's your uh, handle? on on twitter i'm i know i'm already following you on twitter but um don't, 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 follow, right? don't follow me i'm lost too but yes <laughs> okay so for all the followers robert's uh twitter handle is kind of like matthew nielsen's where it's his first name and last name but it's just r pendicio uh, at r pendicio if you want to follow him on twitter he's great to follow on twitter as well but we have a really Excellent guest that I'm really excited to talk to today with with Matthew Nielsen. It's Robert Pendicio at the Fordham Institute, and he actually came up with a came out with a recent book called "Sorry, I'm covering you up, Matthew." I do this all the time, but how the other half learns, and it's been a big hit. And you know, there I think there was a Robert. Did you have the Wall Street Journal piece on this, or was it written by someone else? Yeah, no, I read the Wall Street Journal uh, the week it came out, so last uh, September, I guess it was. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, I'll, I'll link to that in the comments for everybody to go check out the book and then also the Wall Street Journal article. Sorry, Matthew, that we're covering you up for so long. But also for our uh, guests today, we are going to give away a free, I, I, like, I always have to put free in quotes uh, because someone's paying for it. There ain't no such thing as a free book um, or, or a free lunch, whatever the saying is, right? Um, but we're going to give away to a one lucky um listener, uh, for people who are commenting. And again, if you are commenting, we will be able to bring up your comments at the bottom of the page. So make sure you're engaged with the discussion today, uh, so that Robert and, and Matthew and I can respond to your questions and comments, but then also you can, uh, be entered for a chance to win a copy of Robert's recent book, how the other half learns, which we'll talk about in more detail today as well. But looks like we have a good amount of people on, uh, Matthew, you want to get us started? Yeah, let's get going. So I'm Matthew Nielsen. I'm the founder and board chair at the Educational Freedom Institute. I'm joined by Corey DeAngelis, as always. He's the executive director. I said that kind of funny. I'll say that again. He's the executive director at- I think you said it better the first time. Did I? Was it better? (laughs) All right, we'll just leave it then. Uh, At EFI, he is also the director of school choice at the Reason Foundation and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Our special guest today is Robert Pondicio, former full-time teacher, uh, renowned author and education advocate, uh, and also his most recent book, uh, How the Other Half Learns, uh, author of that book, as we mentioned. So thanks for joining us today, Robert. Delight. Our pleasure. So we always start these off, Robert, you may know, we ask a similar question each time of each of our guests, which is tell our audience, if you would, just more about yourself, about how you became interested at the outset, at the beginning in education, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, let's see. I'll make this long story as short as possible. I had a whole other life and career in the media business um, from the age of 19 until just about my 40th birthday. I worked for a few years in radio news and then spent quite a bit of time in the magazine industry um, at Time Magazine and at Business Week. Uh, And in about 2001 or 2002, um, 
in in what I have um, described as a a, a mid career impulse purchase because it was. Um, I signed up for a program called the uh, the New York City Teaching Fellows, uh, which is an alternative certification program in in the city of New York to get you know guys like me mid career switchers into high needs classrooms. Uh, and, and this was going to be my two-year mid-career public service stint after which I, you know, figured out what I want to be when I grow up and go do that. Uh, turned out what I wanted to be when I grow up was, was a teacher and, and in education. So my two-year stint turned into five uh, at PS277 in the South Bronx. Obviously, got interested in, in all the stuff that people in ed reform kind of are not interested in. Um, Curriculum, instruction, pedagogy—you know the stuff that, 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 as I like to say, happens inside of the black box. Um, you know, those of us who work in ed reform, uh, mostly, if you think about it, concern ourselves with the structures of education. You know, with with charter, teacher quality, data, testing, um, school choice—you know, all good things. Don't don't get me wrong. Um, I'm I'm the guy who says, hey, let's talk about what the kids are doing all day. You know, because that matters too. So um, my interest, uh, I mean, I, my, my, my particular interest, I, I, I kind of fell in love, intellectually speaking, with uh, the work of E.D. Hirsch, Jr. of uh, Core Knowledge fame. Um, and I, you know, I've told this story a thousand times. Every time I would, I would bring this up, I mean, Hirsch was the one guy who was describing what I would see in my South Bronx classroom every day, you know, kids who could decode but not read. Um, and since I discovered his work, you know, more or less independently, uh, whenever I bring it up in professional development at my master's classes and whatnot, I'd always hear some variation of, oh, that's that dead white guy stuff. Nobody takes that seriously. And I'd be like, whoa, wait a minute. It's not that at all. It's about it's about reading comprehension. It's about background knowledge. This is, this is the stuff my kids need. Um, this is a good way to make you militant about something when you discover something that, you know, you're passionate about and everybody else is like, come on, that's nothing. Um, so that that became my cause in education, the idea of curriculum uh, and, and instruction. And then it was kind of interesting to discover that the ed reform world was obsessed with, you know, uh, charters, teacher quality, et cetera. And nobody was talking about curriculum. So that just became the kind of vein of ore that I mined. Um, uh, and that, I'm, I've, I've gone on too long, but that's that's basically, you know, what, what I've ended up doing for the last decade or so is is kind of working in the ed reform space and you know, mostly, but not entirely, uh, uh, focusing on on classroom practice. Mm -hmm. Well, that's it. That's it. It is important stuff because just for the reason that you stated, uh, and the same reason that you become militant about it, it's because uh, people don't talk about that in right. in the ed reform space. So I think, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Corey, you were going to say well, something about it more than we used to, but but I'd still say probably not enough. You know, especially yeah. frankly, guys like Corey DeAngelis, who was like always just blah 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 school choice, and you know doesn't care at all about it. I, I, I Robert, I do, I do really like that. You know, you're one of the ed reformers who's, you know, who 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 teaches, right, and who's been a teacher for a while and who's taught civics, and um, you know, that's that. I think that's a lot of that gives you a lot of insight, obviously, in, inside the black box. Uh, but then it gave you so much insight that you've actually written a book about yeah. some of these insights, how the other half learns. So I want, I want to just get the you know, the um, high level overview of your book, you know, why'd you, what, what kind of motivated you to write it? And then just what are the key takeaways? Yeah, so it, it's actually a similar story because, you know, if you live in New York, if you work in the ed reform space, you know, you don't need to be told who Eva Moskowitz is and who Success Academy is, you know, all about mm -hmm. them. But in, in a way, it was almost the same parallel narrative for all of the 
the stuff that had been written about them over the years it tended to be about things like um, you know political controversies and, and whatnot. I, I felt um, that for all that I'd read about Success Academy and their incredible test scores, I didn't know why they were getting them. I, I'd even written a couple of op-eds back in the day saying, um, you know, one in particular, I remember writing that um, I had no idea, I think the quote was, whether Eva Moskowitz was the Mark McGuire of, of, of testing or the Michael Jordan. Um, <laughs> meaning, you know, we, we, get the, we get the reference and I'll assume our listeners do as well. And I remember writing in this piece that somebody needs to get up to Harlem and figure out what the hell is going on. And, and it turned out to be me. But the larger point is, despite the fact there'd been so much news coverage about their test scores and whatnot, I don't think anybody had ever really done the kind of deep dive on what do the kids do all day? What's the mm -hmm. curriculum? What's the program? Um, so I think, I hope, um, because I've written so much about that kind of stuff over the years, it, it, it made me a little bit less of a, of a figure of suspicion to, to, to success. So I was you know, able, it wasn't easy, but I was able to talk myself into uh, embedding in one of their schools for a year simply because I understood classroom practice. I mean, I didn't promise them I was going to write them a Valentine, and, and you know, I don't think I did. Um, but I'm in a position to really understand what I'm seeing every day uh, and, and, and translate that to a, a lay audience. So I think that was kind of the, the way I baited the hook. Mm -hmm. So, it, Robert, it's interesting to me because we've talked a little about this a couple of times about your book, and I've, he I've heard you speak about it as well. Uh, to to groups of people, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling us, telling our audience about um, there. There's a, well, there's a particular person in the book that you mention, a student, and and I think that I know you talk about her a lot, and, and that probably a group of you know a large group of our folks have heard this, but I think it's worth repeating if you don't mind. Uh, tell us about Tiffany. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and actually, it, it dovetails perfectly with my previous kind of anecdote about teaching for five years in the South Bronx. So I, the thing that I should have mentioned was there's this kind of neat little bit of symmetry. So I taught uh, in the South Bronx uh, Community School District 7 uh, in New York City, which then and now is the lowest performing school district uh, in New York City. And the school that I taught in was the lowest performing school in District 7. So the, the, the Success Academy school that I embedded in for a year to write this book was literally across the street from, from where I was a student teacher and just a few blocks away from where I had been a, a full-time fifth grade teacher. And, and the student that you are alluding to, Matthew, was a, a young lady named Tiffany, um, who I have described as you know, just this unusually focused and diligent uh, you know, little kid, a 10-year-old girl who would come to school every day in her school uniform, never missed a day of school, never missed a homework assignment, et cetera. Um, there was no Success Academy back when she was in my classroom in about 2003 or so. Um, but if there had been, she would have been the Success Academy student from Central Casting. I mean, she was, you know, that kid. Mm -hmm. um, and and um, the reason her story resonated with me and kind of had such an impact on me as a teacher and, and now as a writer of an anecdote that or just an incident that happened one day where you know and, and again just to, to paint the picture here the, the school that i was teaching in was extremely low performing um virtually every kid um below grade level and most of them quite far below and this young lady tiffany was you know on grade level she was as we would have said a level three 
and a double three, meaning she got threes on grade level in math and ELA. Um, so, you know, I don't mean this to be dismissive, but but that wasn't necessarily a great achievement, um, you know, by, by the standards of, of education at large. Um, but by the by the standards of, of that school and at that time, she was, you know, the, the, one of the brightest kids that we had. And so I mentioned one day to my special ed supervisor, like, look, I've got this, you know, this focused, diligent kid who's like, you know, teach me something. I'm not doing anything for this kid. And, and she said something that has stuck with me ever since and really kind of, in a sense, shaped my career. She said, quote, she's not your problem. Um, so I've ever, ever since then, I've just described kids like this as the not your problem child. Um, and what she meant, you know, I don't think there was a nefarious intent to mm -hmm. what she was saying, but, but what she meant. Is oh, Robert. Robert just lost us. Oh, he's coming back, though. Right at the climax, Robert. Getting to the, the punchline, but hey, you're, you're back. Yeah, I'm not sure where I dropped off, but but um, this this lady was was on grade level in a school where nobody was, and I was essentially told to ignore her um, and focus my attention on the lower kids. You know, but now fast forward 15 years, if a success academy had existed, she would have been in that school, no doubt in my mind, and nobody would have said to her teacher at a success academy, what are you worried about this kid for? Every kid is 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 that kid in a sense. Uh, either they're, you know, they walk in the door that way or the culture, you know, shapes them that way. Uh, but it just struck me as grossly unfair um, then and still now that, that, you know, we can look at a kid who is, you know, uh, merely on grade level and treat them like they're, they're, they're a finished product. Like that's all the only obligation we have to them. It's, it strikes me as uh, terribly unjust. And, so, and Robert, um, yeah. What what do you think systemically causes that kind of incentive? Is there like an incentive structure in place that leads to focusing? Like, like, yeah. Do you have any? You know, um, Look, I'll, I'll give you the, the I'll give you the kind answer, okay? Because you know, mm -hmm. Corey, you, this is where you know you and I we we tend to see the world the same way, but we're probably part company on this a little bit. You know, I'm not unsympathetic to to the the the, the challenge um, of of teaching in a school like the one that I used to teach. I mean, it's 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 not an insensible decision, right? When every kid in your classroom is you know uh, below grade level or profoundly grade level, to look at the the the, the kid who is you know, more or less where they they should be and say, yeah, you know that that one would be fine. Um, it's 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 a decision that no affluent family ever has to be on the receiving end of, and that's the injustice. I mean, nobody's ever going to say, you know, to me as a parent, oh, your kid's on grade level, that's, that's fine, we're not worried about your kid, that's unthinkable. Um, but it's not necessarily um, an insensible decision for uh, a school that is facing just, you know, a tremendous amount of adversity. But, you know, and this is the big but, and I guess this is you know, kind of what upsets people a little bit about uh, the, the book that I've written, um, you know, we can't teach or treat children as public property. I mean, because again, at the risk of repeating myself, nobody treats my child as public property. When my kid, you know, goes to private school or when I move my family to the suburbs, it's unremarkable if an Eva Moskowitz or somebody like that comes along and 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 creates an attractive option for these types of kids and family, then we say, oh, wait a minute, you know, you can't do that. You're, you know, you're robbing the the, the 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 struggling school of the resource that is that child and and on the one hand that's not wrong on the other hand it's it's not right you know in other words we don't have the right as a policy matter 
to, 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 to put roadblocks in front of those families and say, oh, I'm sorry, no, you know, those white kids, they get to move to the burbs. Those white kids, they get to, you know, uh, go to private school, but not your kid. You, your kid's got to stay here for the good of all. I mean, that's just, um, you can't, it just strikes me as, as morally, um, a morally questionable decision to make on behalf of other people's children. So another thing that I found very interesting with the whole discussion of your book is that, you know, you, you, you made, you didn't make people super happy on either side, right? Um, you had a little bit of things to say that made, made the, the school choice supporters happy and the charter school supporters happy. And then at the same time, you know, you made, you made the choice skeptics happy as well. Can you talk about why that is? And, you know, maybe get into the secret, secret sauce. Yeah, no, well, it's okay. Yeah, well, just get into the secret sauce of uh, Success Academy and what you found out. Yeah, yeah. Look, you know, um, it's nice to be, uh, you know, fifty something years old and have your college, your daughter's college tuition paid off, and your, you know, and, and your mortgage retired because then you can be a little bit more honest, right? Um, I mean, I'm being glib, but I'm also being somewhat serious here. You know, a lot of us in this work align ourselves with with uh, you know one vision of, of of you know one flavor of education or reform or the other, and and I just, you know. Look, I'm a, you know I say this in the book. I spend the entire first chapter kind of detailing um, you know my, my 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 biases. You know, look, I'm a choice guy. I'm a charter guy, etc. But that said, um, you know, there's stuff in the book that Corey you just mentioned that 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 choice and charter people will not like because you know the narratives that have attached themselves to this work for the last 20 years have been kind of, you know, simple and simplistic and, and really advocacy um, narratives as opposed to, you know, uh, academic, intellectual, or, or even journalistically valid um, uh, narratives. So we because oh, the only difference in the door that the kid walks in in the morning, they walk in this door, Come and they walk and that door to Robert, we're we're losing and you a little bit. I'm gonna remove you from the screen and then re-add you. Let's see if this works. I just reset it, huh? Mm-hmm. I think it might be on Robertson though. They, and he was just getting to the point that the choice supporters didn't like. How convenient. There, there's going to be conspiracy, conspiracy theories that we cut them off. Right, right. Dang it. Off. So. Uh, but I, I don't want to steal his thunder, but I mean, here's here's the uh, the point here, right? Um, I think he got back in. Oh, here Robert, you there? Robert, yeah. can you hear us? He's muted. Robert, you're muted. If you uh, can uh, click the bottom left uh, unmute button. Sweet. Okay, you're back. Maybe. Yeah, I'm giving these long answers and cutting myself off, I guess. I've got bad Wi-Fi. Um, anyway, long story short, that, um, you know, both of these narratives, you know, pro-charter and pro-public education narratives are um, – to quote somebody I never quote Stephen Colbert, uh, but there's there's uh, there's elements of truth to both of them. But right, um, so 
what does it mean? The, the, the idea of the book that I think made Carter supporters and Success Academy supporters unhappy, even though it's a fairly warm portrait, a very warm portrait of what's happening in schools, he said, look, it's, it's just not reasonable um, to say that these are, you know, this door good, that door bad, um, doesn't work. Um, there are what I described in, in some detail, you know, self mechanisms. In Robert, hey Robert, that, we're getting um, a lot of uh, like uh, staticky. I don't, I don't know why. Can, is there a way to, for you to call in like selfie mode on your phone? That that could be a good um, workaround. So we're getting a bunch of um, kind of choppy choppiness. Sure. Hey Matthew, could you send him a link? Um, yeah. Yep, I'll send you a link, Robert. On uh, we'll try this. You sound like Wally. Have you seen Wally? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. There you go. Do you have it on your phone? We're gonna get so many conspiracy theories where we cut them <laughs> off. Dang it! Yeah, that's too bad. That's uh... I'm gonna send this to. We'll give him extra time to. To, read, to go over that again, um, I'm going to share, send it to him on Twitter. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's the quickest way. <clears throat> yeah, I think we missed a lot of the um, discussion, but I think just for the listener, just in case we don't get Robert back, uh, as I was kind of pointing out in his Wall Street Journal article, if you want to get this kind of nuanced take, this is where, you know, it really comes out. If you don't want to read the full book, I I, I would argue that you should read the full book to get everything. But mm-hmm. he kind of goes in that and he says, you know, on the one hand, you know, charter schools are supposed to use random admissions uh, so that, you know, they are open to the public. They're not discriminatory in that way. But then he says, on the other hand, you know, Success Academy does really well in that they, they don't cream students, they cream parents, that they uh, have a pretty difficult, you know, um, selection mechanism in that the parents need to really buy into the mission of the charter school. But that doesn't mean that the charter school says you can't apply, right? So they just kind of, um... there, Robert's back. Robert, all right, much better. Um, we were super choppy oh, sorry, and- I was just I was just telling the audience that uh, you know th- we promised that just because you were st- it, w- it was almost like perfectly timed right when you were getting into the uh, the the things that make tr- you know choice advocates potentially feel feel uneasy that's right when you started kind of <laughs> going out so if you can cover those again it won't look like a, a huge conspiracy to squash those opinions <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, um, and and sorry about the, the bad Wi-Fi. I guess it's on, on my end, and I'm not sure what I can do about it other than just try to muddle through. Um, no, the, the the point that was controversial, I think, and I think, look, this has been hiding in plain sight um, at Success Academy for many years. It's just simply uh, misleading, I think, to suggest that this is a lottery children. Um, a detail in the book, it's Protest. There's many steps between being the lottery. Um, we're missing, we're losing them again, aren't we? Yeah. Hey, Robert, so, uh, 
so Robert, I mean, oh yeah, you, he's, I think he's asking if there's a number he can call in on. Um, yes. And I don't think that there is actually. It's unfortunately. Just, uh, yeah. Um, if so, the Wi-Fi isn't working on your phone and your phone's connected to Wi-Fi, a good way to get around that is to just de you know disconnect from Wi-Fi and just use 4G if that works uh, better. Um, if the, if the if it's the Wi-Fi that's causing all the problems. So I'm kind of disappointed that we haven't heard him. Uh, I wanted to hear what quote he quoted Stephen Colbert, but I didn't get the quote, and I wanted to hear that. Uh, that was the first time. Um, and then here we go. He's coming back. He's loaded. Yep. Hey. Let's try that. Uh, sorry, this has got to be very frustrating for people, including including you guys. My apologies. No, no problem. It's okay. It's actually, uh, it looks I, like your video is working. Yeah. So this is the best it's been. So go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just changed changed routers to see if that helps. Um, no, the, the the point I was making, and I hope this isn't uh, something I said before I cut out, is that um, it is simply misleading to suggest that the parents or the children who get into Success Academy are a pure random lottery. Mm -hmm. um, the the enrollment process requires parents to jump through any number of you know uh, I would call non-trivial hoops to to stay engage in the process, uh, come to a welcome meeting, uniform fitting, meet the teacher day, etc. And, and, and it just seems uh, pointless to deny that this does not, uh, you know, this, that this doesn't prove to be a, a hurdle for uh, parents who are not um, either, you know, deeply engaged, or at least who have the bandwidth to, to, to stay active in the process. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what you end up with is a parent body who is either um, actively buying what Success Academy is selling, or at least willing to go along with the program. You get, a, you get an active, engaged parent body, and that's just a, a, an advantage compared to where, where I was teaching. I don't know why this is controversial, um, but it is, you know, uh, and I don't think it should be. Uh, and, and that's, and that's so, so in other words, I'm, I'm kind of occupying a, a middle narrative here where I'm saying, look, you know, when, when folks at, at places like my old school say their job is harder, than, than for a charter school, well, they're, they're not wrong. Um, and when the critics say, look at, a, at a, a success academy or other high achieving charter school and say, well, look, they've got it easier, they're also not wrong. But again, and critically, that, that doesn't give us the right to deny that kind of education to those who raise their hands and say, I want that. Mm -hmm. And so this is interesting because you've, Robert, some of the, and I've seen it, uh, I'm curious how often you've seen this. In response to your book, I've seen some folks who are critical of choice, uh, you know, public school proud, that will say, uh, see, we knew it. Robert has just confirmed after a year, uh, you know, being embedded at success academies that charter schools cream the best students. Yeah, and that's, that would be slightly misleading because it's, they're not creaming students. What they are is they are creating a what I would describe as a self-selection mechanism for the most engaged parent to send their kids to school with other engaged parents, and 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 you know the, if if that strikes you as unfair, then you need to answer the question why it's only unfair for low-income families of color. 
and why it's not unfair when I do that, because I did do that mm-hmm. with my kid, um, mm-hmm. or why it's not you know unfair when, again, families opt out of the public school system, go to private or parochial school, move to the suburbs, et cetera. Um, so let's just be consistent. In other words, you can't say that this is this is unfair, but okay, mm-hmm. until or unless an Eva Moskowitz comes along and offers low-income families of color something similar to what the other half gets. Well, and and you, and you have parents selecting into other types of government-run schools too, right? Like by neighborhood through residential assignment, if they can afford the better houses, um, you know, or the houses that are assigned to the better, the higher quality schools and magnet schools have selective admissions explicitly uh, in some cases. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's the right way to look at it, Robert, that, that we shouldn't look Corey, at it. Let me make yeah. one point, if I can, because you know, uh, I don't want to leave the impression, uh, I want to be really careful about this, that what I just described, this, this selection process is the secret sauce. If that's all there were to it, then, then how do you account for a success academy outscoring the gifted and talented programs, which literally do handpick their kids? Mm. Um, I mean, for memory, if I mean, Success Academy now has something on the so order of um, 50 schools and 18,000 students. If it were a standalone school district that's big enough to be one, it would be by far the best performing school district in the state of New York. Um, mm. So in other words, they have they have um, closed whatever achievement gap is associated with the gifted and talented with the million dollar home on Long Island and Westchester. Those those school districts are now chasing Success Academy. That's a hell of an accomplishment. So, Robert, you're based in New York, right? I think I heard something about um, New York potentially getting rid of or trying to get rid of their gifted programs. I don't know if that was just something in the media or someone was arguing against it. What are your thoughts on that, uh, of getting getting rid of the, the gifted programs in the uh, residentially assigned schools or the, or the uh, district schools? Uh, I, I think it's a bad idea. I mean, look, you know, um, I, I get cranky about this, and and we're and I want to be careful here because we are at a at a political moment right now that feelings have been kind of rubbed raw around issues of of, of race and equity. Um, but it just strikes me, you know, being old enough to have lived through the bad old days in New York, uh, you know, in the '60s and '70s. Where, where you had, you know, anybody who had any kind of means and mechanism of leaving the city did. Uh, it just strikes me that we're making some of those same mistakes again. Um, and I, and I would, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, there's a chancellor in this, in, in the city of New York, Richard Carranza and the mayor, Bill de Blasio, who are, um, they, they seem determined to, to squeeze any advantage that ambition gives to, to, to a family out of the equation that, that troubles me. So what, what do you think is the, I, I, there's, uh, there's obviously no like silver bullet to, to, to improving, you know, the system, but from the takeaways of your book and, and seeing that, you know, parental engagement could be important. Um, do you have any recommendations or, or how we can improve the, the whole system? Um, I know it's a tough question because it's there is no silver bullet, but maybe just anything yeah, look, improve. No, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've already confessed my 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 choice um, preferences, um, but I think where I might disagree with some of our more doctrinaire choice advocate friends is that I don't view it as as a magic bullet. Um, not that they do, um, but there's a reason that that in addition to being 
a choice advocate, I'm also a curriculum and instruction guy. Um, because, you know, uh, you can have good schools of choice and bad schools of choice. You can have good district schools and bad district schools. And that is probably more of a function of their curriculum, their pedagogy, their, cult, their school culture, than the fact that this one's a charter school and this one isn't. Um, mm -hmm. So I think both of those things, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to have to be, uh, I don't want to have to pick and choose, you know, either a choice guy or, or a, 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 a curriculum guy. I think, you know, it, it either all works together or it doesn't work at all. Mm -hmm. But having said so, look, I think you're more likely to, to get a good outcome in a school of choice for any number of reasons. You just, there's just fewer moving parts, right? Uh, you have more control over hiring and firing. You have more control mm -hmm. over your, your instructional program. Um, you know, you can you can set a culture and say, look, this is how how we do things here, and if this is not for you, then it's not for you. Um, it's much much harder to do that uh, in a traditional district neighborhood zone zone setting, and I think we just need to be candid about that. So, be, us, uh, oh, go ahead, Matthew. I was going to say, tell us about how uh, Success Academies and and not maybe even just them, but uh, how the other half has done during lockdown you've talked at least a little about that and so if you want to tell us uh, how they've done and, and maybe what you think has contributed to that yeah i think they've done well i mean let, let, let's be clear you know right now i've been gently chiding my my ed reform friends here i mean because you know we see our kids in front of zoom all day and we say oh look you know their school is adapted and and there's, there's learning going on but we really don't know right so, I mean, my, my, my gentle chiding here is we used to be about outcomes and now suddenly we're intrigued with inputs. We see a kid in front of a computer and we assume, you know, good things are happening. So let's just be consistent <laughs> and admit that we really don't know, you know, whether this is, is, is effective, you know, teaching and learning or not. Um, it's better than not making the attempt, but, but we don't know. Um, but look, that, back to your specific question, Matthew, um, every visible indication is that success is doing quite well with this. I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago about this, you know, when, when COVID first hit, uh, success closed down a few days before the New York City school system did, um, and they hit the ground running. Um, within a week, they were up and running and reaching virtually every kid. Um, mm -hmm. And as time has gone on, parents in the system have told me that they've kind of, you know, keep upping the rigor and upping the, the, the complexity. Uh, so it looks like uh, they are very much a model of what it looks like to um, transfer schooling into this kind of remote learning virtual um, uh, system that we're all kind of fumbling our way uh, toward or through. But again, I wanna be clear, you know, everything about their program and culture set them up for success, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, they are already technology minded. They already have deep levels of parental engagement. They already have uh, a teacher force that is in constant uh, communication with families. So all of the, the kind of the systems and routines and, and cultural touch points that other schools were trying to create, well, they, they had on day one because that's just the way they roll, so to speak. Um, so yeah, we've got a lot to learn from them and, and never bet against Eva Moskowitz. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, she's you know, kind of this, this unusually gifted organizational leader. Um, it would not, so again, we don't know how they're doing, but it would not surprise me if the same thing that got me interested in them five years ago, 
that they were getting better when everybody else was getting worse, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, if we ever see standardized test results ever again, um, that they're still killing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Robert, I've, I've heard a bunch of anecdotes on either side of this, right? There's been a lot of parents who felt like they're getting a lot out of distance learning and, and that their districts are doing a good job. And as, as you said, that Success Academy has been doing a good job. Uh, then you've heard the other side of this, right? That a lot of districts haven't been doing a good job. So I wanted to get your just quick take on this recent Wall Street Journal article and just maybe just even the, your take on the headline. Wall Street Journal just came out with an article with a couple of their reporters that says the results are in for remote learning. It didn't work. What are your just two yeah, cents on that? Sure, right? <laughs> I'm actually writing a piece about this right now that I guess uh, will go up on Rick Hess's blog, which I'm guess posting for this week. Um, and look, some of the points in the art are, are, are what I what I just said. Um, it's it's a little bit premature to say it did or it didn't work because we simply you know if 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 anybody has measured you know what's the, what learning is happening, I haven't seen it. We're just measuring you know the degree to which um, uh, schools are up and running, the degree to which uh, parents are are uh, participating or students are are participating. We know more about like say attendance and touch points than we know about you know actual learning. Mm-hmm. Um, Look, whether we like it or not, we kind of have to get good at this or at least acceptable at it pretty soon. Um, you know, there's, and I, you know, I'm a, I'm a lot less doctrinaire about this than some others. I'm, I'm quite willing to, to forgive, you know, a multitude of sins from March to June, uh, you know, when, when districts were caught up short by, by this stuff, um, you know, and, and, uh, Schools are complicated places, and they've got they they they've got a lot of things to do besides teach. You know, it, it, they are for for good or for ill. Uh, you know, civic centers, community centers. They 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 feed kids, etc. <clears throat> you know, those are. I'm not dismissive of those functions whatsoever. But if as this goes, um, you know, as the uncertainty lingers from COVID, as this goes from say an acute to a chronic condition, at some point you don't have the luxury of saying. Well, you know, we're just going to do the best we can. In other words, it just strikes me as good governance at this point uh, that every school has to either you know be good at this or have some plan in place for continuity of service. If there's a second wave, for example, later in the year, if the vaccine doesn't materialize, um, you know, at, at some at some point you kind of have to do your job and 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 you know do better than just kind of shrug your shoulders and say, well, you know, we can't. Um, so it's just ironic, right, that especially those of us in the ed reform space who have kind of dumped all over online learning and online charter schools for years, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of the, uh, the, the the Toby Keith song, you know, how do you like me now? Um, <laughs> we kind of we, we, we have to get good at this now. Um, and and we, we can't really afford to, to sneer anymore at, at online schools because there are two types of schools in the world. Those are online schools. Those are that are online schools and those that will be. Yeah. Well, and that's a great point, right? So on uh, what Friday, uh, Corey and I talked to uh, Jeff Kwiatkowski of K-12 Inc. And uh, we talked about a little about that. And um, I think you're right. You know, I mean, that we were kind of, (laughs) it's funny if you look back and just go back maybe 10 years and take a survey of all of the policy proposals that came before state legislatures, before school district boards across the country, and see how many times 
you know, uh, virtual learning or blended learning model or similar phrases came up in official public meetings. And I think you'd come up, I don't know that I've done this, but I can imagine the stack would be high, right? I mean, that sure. stack, that list would be really long. Uh, and we were all just forced, 350 million of us uh, were just forced into what we had been talking about yeah. for over a decade, we need to get there. We need to get there. We and then overnight, it's if you're not there today, then yeah. you're not serving kids well, and so on and so forth. So it, yeah, I, I think you're yeah. exactly on point there. But but let's be really really clear, you know, Matthew, which is that um, you know, and, and maybe you guys will agree with me on this. I, I'm old school enough to think that. I mean, well, let's let's just be honest that this is never going to be quite the substitute for uh, for for brick and mortar schools. Now, look, you know, and I don't want to be I want to be clear on this as well. That's that's not a value judgment. I completely respect those who want to you know educate their children virtually. Not my kid, not my choice. Um, but you know, most Americans, I think, have the cultural habit of sending their kids to a place called a school. You know, not just to you know expedite their learning, but to be around other kids, to make friends, to you know. Uh, to, you know, to, to be in a space without their parents, so to speak. Um, that's, that's, that's a real value um, that people have, and it's not going to go away. Uh, so, you know, re regardless of how one feels about online education, um, you know, it's just getting more complicated. How about that? You know, mm -hmm. we, we don't have the luxury of saying, do it this way, don't do it that, that way. Um, we're just going to have to be a lot more nimble and more flexible than we are used to being. But at the same time, we need to be realistic about this. I mean, I, I, I have not seen any, this is where I guess I'm going to agree somewhat with that Wall Street Journal article. The early returns are not, are not likely to be promising. You know, um, I, I've been kind of you know, thinking about this because you've seen all these articles that, oh, this works really, really well for some kids. And, and some families are discovering that this is fantastic and they're going to continue it. Well, then there's a lot of other families for whom exactly the opposite is true, which, mm -hmm. by the way, isn't this true about everything in mm -hmm. education? D Dylan William has this wonderful phrase um, about how everything works somewhere and nothing works everywhere. And that's that's exactly right. Um, so that, you know, the, a, a more sophisticated view of this just means that good practice means you have to have a lot of arrows in your quiver and be prepared to, to service uh, kids and families in, in the way that's best for them. Yeah. And I yep. think that's that's that just goes back to the school choice argument, right? That you know, for some for some families, homeschooling they could see that it worked, right? And and you know, sure. maybe they'd want to switch. But like you're saying, for a lot of families, you know, either because of you know work scenarios or because they maybe they just you know they don't feel like they have the qualifications or whatever it may be, you know, maybe a brick and mortar school works works better for for those families. So I think you're right that. You know, there is a lot more nuance than than just homeschooling for all or or brick and mortar school for all. It's it's you know, there's we need to be able to allow families to, to sort into those different environments based based on how they how confident they feel in, in, in being able to do these things. And then also uh, just their preferences. Right. Um, yeah. I, I also wanted to get your thoughts on a couple of things. Here, here's a recent tweet that just came up uh, has over. 600,000 likes, I want to say at this point, 658,000 likes went viral. This one went viral. Another one that was similar went viral. Sometimes people copy each other on Twitter. There's another one that has like 200,000 likes. That's pretty similar. 
but this seems to be going around like wildfire on, on the internet right now. But here's the quote for the listeners. Defunding the police sounds radical until you realize, realize we've been defunding education for years. What are your thoughts? On, uh, regardless of the, the police you know, debate, what, what are your thoughts on, yeah. on the entire quote? <laughs> Look, I, I remember the first time, because um, you know, I think I painted the picture earlier in this, in this discussion that I kind of walked in to my first teaching job, uh, you know, wet behind the ears for my relatively advanced age, just not really knowing a whole lot I think I, you know, the, 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 I hadn't been in an elementary school since I'd been an elementary school teacher or a student rather. Uh, and then that next time I was there for, you know, 30 years later as a teacher. And I remember being stunned uh, in my naivete the first time that I realized that every student in front of me back in 2002, 2003 was, was uh, costing the city of New York, I think, you know, $17,000, $18,000 a year. And I remember thinking, holy hell, I'll tell you what, I'll take 10 of them. I'll, I'll teach them in, in my apartment. I'll give them lunch. Give me that money. You're better off. And that, <laughs> a, a third if, of the class if, size. If, yeah, if, if they those you know, really small class size. And if they don't pass the test, then then don't pay me for that kid. I, I was just, I remember just being shocked by by. Uh, the amount of money um, that we were spending as 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 a as a city to educate these kids, and frankly, not very very well. Um, look, you know, school finance is not my my area of expertise, uh, but it just kind of strains credulity to think that that's um, that is the answer, uh, or, or that we are not, or that we're underfunding uh, kids. Look, my my school again, lowest performing school lowest performing district in the city of New York. We had lots of problems. I just don't think that was one of them. So and the trend and the trend is incorrect, right? As well. Like in in the US that we've consistently increased inflation adjusted education spending. We haven't defunded it unless you you have some really weird definition of what defunding means. Maybe maybe if you don't increase it by 20% a year, then that's actually defunding. A 10% increase is a defund relative to 20% increase, I guess. But it just, I just yeah. thought this was amazing that it went so viral. I freaked out when I saw it at 300,000 likes. And, you know, just within a day or two since then, it's it's over double, doubled. And wow. regardless of all the replies to it saying, you know, uh, this isn't actually true, it's just kept going and going and spreading like wildfire, like I said, with other people copying the tweet and it going viral as well. And then with this individual as well. Where's the Twitter fact check when you need it? <laughs> I uh, yeah, I told my yeah. wife about this tweet uh, yesterday because I Corey was all over it on Twitter. And I was like, uh, this is a, he's replying to every single person. I think all 658,000 of those people. Oh, <laughs> Not really. But do the people who sign your paychecks know that you were on Twitter all day? Do they know that? Hey, that was that was all weekend. Yes, and of course everybody knows I'm on Twitter. <laughs> so I okay. told uh, right. I told my wife cool about that. that, right? They're cool. Yeah, They're yeah, cool. yeah, they they've seen their my tweets. <laughs> so I told my wife about it and and she says she goes that's crazy and yeah she knows enough to know because I tell her all this stuff anyway about what the funding is and we see something in the news and, and I'm a, I'm a geek and I'm a nerd like that. And I tell her stuff like that. And so she's up on all of it. So I tell her that and she goes, she recalled that our oldest daughter uh, was, she attended a title one school uh, 
very high, I think 85% plus FRL school, elementary school for her elementary years. And, um, and she said, we had, she was re reminding me, she had her own uh, computer, her own laptop that was just assigned to her. She had three paid field trips all over the state, you know, for the year, which they were never paid in any other school. Like, it, And she goes on and on about all these funding related amenities that were given to her because we were living in, in this area where we were assigned to the school. And so um, that it, all that to say that just to drive home that point that money isn't the answer. Uh, and you, 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 yeah, you, you, you're anyway, anyway, you require somewhat. Um, and, and again, you know, because this is, this is one of the reasons why I focused uh, so much of what I do on, on classroom practice. Uh, you know, what we have in American education is is not necessarily um, issues of governance, not necessarily issues of, of, of finance. We have issues of competence. Right. Um, you know, I got I got a lot of grief from, you know, guys like Corey DeAngelis, you know, when, when I was supporting Common Core a few years ago. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll own that. Um, in my way of thinking, it was it was an it was an opportunity to kind of focus on classroom practice, focus on the inside of the black box as opposed to all these other things. Not that I love you know standards necessarily, but I remember saying and meaning it. That look, what what Common Core will really do is is, is surface the practice uh, the problems of practice that we have in this country. It's not going to fix it, mm -hmm. um, but we're what we're going to discover uh, is 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 that you know. If you have the idea, this is this is where my you know the, the limits of my 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 choice um, you know uh, fandom as it were. If you have the idea that American education that teachers and, and administrators know what to do, they just need to be freed in order to do that. Let me promise you that's not true. Um, it's a good thing that those who who have you know a vision and are competent uh, should should be free to do what they do. But we have a massive massive problem. Uh, with with just uh, delivering even the base level of, of, of good instruction and curriculum in this country. And, and um, all these other problems, including finance, do not do not address that. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I, I, um, it reminds me of a study that was done about uh, teachers. And this was I can't remember when it was done, but it talks about uh, teacher certification, the quality uh, implications of that certification and does it really mean what we think it means uh, mm -hmm. i haven't been able to find that again but i need to dig that up anyway um all good points there so Corey, did you have something I, yeah well that, i was about i was about to google that teacher certification study i know yeah. i know jason bedrick has shared it on twitter before but yeah it's essentially you see the two distributions where the, the teacher quality levels seem to be pretty much the same whether they're certified it, traditionally or not brookings yep. a brookings paper yes, but yeah yep. I, I wanted to ask uh robert about his blog that just came out at the rick hess uh education week blog if if he, if he comes back i think uh Robert just uh, signed out on us, um, but while while we're waiting on on um, Robert to come back, he's now his device is connected, so we might not want to switch back to Robert. Can you hear us? Can you hear us? We can see you. 
Can you hear us, Robert? I can see you. I can hear you a little bit. Okay. We can hear you and we can see you. So we want to talk about your piece in the, on the Rick Hess blog. Okay. Yeah, stirring, stirring things up again today, apparently. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> sleepy little backwater. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't hear what the question was, but I'll just pretend that there, there was a question. I'll just tell you about it. Um, you know, I, I teach to this day, uh, at least part-time, I teach high school civics uh, at a charter school in, in New York City, Democracy Prep, that has civic education at its, at its, uh, at its core. Um, that said, uh, you know, so, so civic education is kind of my side hustle, I guess I would say, um, in, in, in this work. And, and I've just noticed, I mean, you can't not notice that we're just not very good at teaching civics. I don't mean where I teach, I just mean American education in general. <laughs> and, and little of, of it that we do tends to focus on, on government. Um, and if you start to look at you know, civic engagement at the broadest possible level, um, well, you know, there, there's government and there's politics and that's important and we valorize voting to, to, to kids all across this country. Um, but the, 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 the earnest question that I'm asking my fellow civic educators with this piece is, uh, are we getting to the point where partisanship is so virulent and so white hot that it's getting in the way of, of the broader goals of, mm. of civil society? In other words, you know, there, there, there are three sectors, so to speak. There's the, the public or the political sphere. There's the, the, the corporate or private sphere. And then there's this kind of third sphere. Things like churches, community organizations, um, uh, social uh, clubs, and whatnot—you know—the kind of things that that um, you know, volunteer fire departments that that really are important to keeping communities run uh, running. And and all of those sort of third sector civil society institutions depend on a extraordinary degree of of trust um, and and uh, you know tolerance of each other. Um, and if we're getting to the point where partisanship is is interfering with our ability to work together on the PTA, to you know, to to have our kids play little league alongside each other, to you know, to 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 be good neighbors, to be friends with our you know, in 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 churches and whatnot. Well, then the the, the my earnest question is, um, do we need to rebalance this? So so what's controversial about this piece? I, the title of it, of it is, I think, I teach civics and I'm not going to vote. Um, <laughs> This is just a decision for me. I, I'm not trying to impose this on anybody else, mm -hmm. uh, but, but I'm using this to ask, like, hey, look, you know, is it time that we really kind of view the larger civic or civil society initiatives uh, and, and purpose of education and maybe just kind of tone it down a little bit on the partisanship? Because it's probably more than we realize getting in the way of, of our working together across uh, intellectual political differences in our communities. So I, I mentioned this the other day on another one of our um, might have been with Neil actually last week with Neil McCluskey. I think I mentioned uh, Yuval Levine's book who you, yeah. Robert, you Great tweeted book. about that. I picked it up. I read it on your recommendation and I thought uh, maybe I'd ask you about that because that dovetails perfectly into what you just said. The institutions that we all rely on, that we all participate in, as Americans in in society, I'm curious to know relative. Maybe maybe we uh, relate it. I've lost you guys. Schools. Can you hear me? 
you're choppy a little bit on the video, but that looks better. Is it cleaned up? Yeah, uh, I didn't. I didn't hear a question, but I did hear you say Luval Levin. Um, I, I think I've sent that book now to about a dozen <laughs> of my friends, um, and, and and he's he's uh, about the, the the best and sharpest writer you know in print right now, in my in my humble opinion. Um, his most recent book, I think it's called The Time to Build, is about this crisis in in our public institutions, and and he makes the point uh, that that institutions in our country used to shape and constrain us, and now they become platforms, you know, for performative uh, or performative spaces. And I think he's just dead right about that. Mm -hmm. And and uh, you see it in the media, you see it in our politics. Look, hey, hey, we're doing it right now, right? I mean, we're all supposed to be education people, and here we are, you know, in public playing a performative role yeah. as opposed to, you know, being in our schools. So, you know, let's let's not be those who are uh, what, what is the saying? The, the, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. So uh, I'm, I'm not guiltless in this myself. None of us are. I, I just think it's interesting, you know, and, and earlier I had the thought um, as you were talking about uh, success academies. And I thought, you know, some, some of our schools become, and maybe some is the wrong word, but maybe it's closer to all and some, maybe it's somewhere in between. I don't know, but I wonder if some of our educational institutions become collateral damage to the politics of the day. And, and I think that that is especially, we're especially at risk of that right now. And in this context of a, a time to build, right. Um, and Levin's words on that and his thoughts on, on institutions. I wonder if our K-12 system, our, the kids in our K-12 institutions across the country are becoming collateral damage to uh, partisan fights. What do you yeah, think? Well, I, look, I think it's even um, uh, more basic than that. Um, this is where, okay, I, I, you know, uh, I'm on a roll, so I won't stop. You know, now I'll stick my thumb in the eye of of, of my ed reform colleagues. Um, you know, th this this one is on us, right? Um, we we have uh, arguably debased education in the last twenty years, for for good reasons. Look, I mean, you know, it, let's not pretend that there was a golden age of of American education where you know everybody just kind of did really really well. Um, you know. It, it's, I've described my complicated relationship with testing, for example, but that doesn't mean I'm anti-testing. Um, but you know, when, I, when I say we've broken education to a degree, uh, we have, uh, in, in the name of greater equity, in the name of trying to correct the historical damage that's been done to low-income kids of color in places called school, uh, well, we've, you know, we've kind of spread the damage around a little bit. We've, we've been guilty, I think, of, of kind of, you know, reducing education uh, oh, okay. This is this is this is um, overly broad. But if the if the point of things like No Child Left Behind were to make bad schools more like good schools, sometimes we've done just the opposite. We've made, made good schools look more like bad schools uh, by the <laughs> curriculum narrowing and, and whatnot. Um, right. <clears throat> so you know, I, I don't want to I don't want to you know uh, paint with too broad of a brush. Mm -hmm. um, but this actually gets back to uh, to me one of the big takeaways of from Success Academy in my book, like you know, this is, this is my, my biggest defense of, of, of what they do. You don't have to love Success Academy or Eva Moskowitz, and you can look at their brand of education and say, yeah, look, you know, I don't like this school. It's too harsh. It's too militaristic, et cetera. 
but consider what it represents, which is a school where based on how we keep score, test scores, damn near every kid goes home at the end of the school year with a level three and or a level four and they think, hey, I'm good at this. You know, I got, mm-hmm. a, I got a, a state test result that said that I'm just as good as those kids in Scarsdale. I'm just as good as those kids in, you know, uh, Jericho and Long Island. And not only that, all of my friends are. You know, so in other words, that just, as a civic matter, that just changes the relationship of a community with a place called school. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, wh- whether you like what they do or not, my, my long-term bet is that's going to pay real dividends. Because at the end of the day, isn't that what a school is about? It's about, it's, it's not so much the test score. Um, it's about, this is a place where I go to kind of, you know, uh, find my way into the American mainstream, to, to find something that I'm good at, uh, to try my hand at a challenging task and persevere and see what that's like. Um, if all you know of school, and this has got to be the experience for the vast majority of low-income kids of color in schools in America, if all I know is um, I don't do well here, uh, they don't seem to like me here, they don't hold me to high expectations, um, if you contrast that with a success academy, which just the opposite, they hold you to very high expectations, a lot is expected of you, uh, and then you, you, know, you are challenged, you are pushed, and then you're successful. And then you that that I just have to believe that you that just changes the dynamic between a community and this thing called school. And in the final analysis, whether I like or don't like what they do at Success Academy, I love that. Mm-hmm. So, Robert, I know we're go, getting a little over an hour, but we've we've had so many glitches that I think it's okay to go a little bit over this time. Um, but you know, you hit a little bit on the test score piece, and I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, how do you define like a high quality school, uh, in particular, like a, a like a high quality charter school, um, for example. What what's your definition of you know? How do we know yeah, if this I, if I, this I school prefer, is one or, or bad? To define it. Uh, yeah, I I would prefer not to define it. I mean that earnestly. In other words, um, you know, I think about the choices that I had as a reasonably affluent you know white guy in Manhattan. When it came time to choose a school for for my daughter, it was kind of comical actually because it was at the same time I became a um, a, a school teacher, a public school teacher. I mean, to say to say more than I perhaps should, my my wife was a private school girl, I was a public school boy, and private school was the the the, the price of peace in, in our home. And oh my goodness, what a price! Um, but it was just it just struck me, you know, when when you talk to well off, you know, Upper East Side Manhattaners. Manhattanites, who, you know, act like the difference between a Brearley, a Chapin, um, you know, um, is the difference between looking at the moon and walking on the moon. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, there's not going to be a bad outcome. Like, all these all these schools are great. Um, and I contrasted it, you know, rather pointedly with, with the experience of, of the students that I was teaching. They didn't have a choice. And if they did, their choices would be bad, worse, and oh, my God. You know, so it's just, I don't want to be in the business of defining what a good charter school or good school looks like for low-income kids. What I want is for them to have the same opportunity that I had when it came time to choose for my daughter. I want them to be able to have those discussions that say, oh, no, no, you know, KIPP is not success. Success is not achievement first. I would never send my kid to this school. This school is different. <laughs> 
there, there is there is no reason on God's green earth to assume uh, that 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 every parent is not capable of of, of that that fine grained distinction between schools. And it is not up to me to, to make those choices for them. It is up to us to make those choices available to them. Boom. I love that. That went really well, Robert. I couldn't have said it any better. That was perfect. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to quit while I'm not too far behind. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, do you have any, uh, you know, final questions for Robert? You know, I do, but um, you know, we, well, he's already been really generous. Let's, oh, let's give him another one. <laughs> uh, so, well, I really, we really could go on forever, but I'll, I'll just ask one final one. Uh, and maybe we'll have to, that just means we'll have to have you on another time if you're willing. But um, for now, yeah. So, so my final question, Robert, would be um, more about this, the flexibility. I want to touch on that again. I want to talk, talk a little about, if you would, what you think parents are not going to be willing to give up going forward as you know, the lockdown occurred, uh, certain things were put in place and some families may have loved what was going on there and, and said, Hey, this worked really well for my family. And some may not have, and we, we talked about that already, but what do you think schools in the next 18 to 24 months are just going to have to do? We are going to have to build, these flexibilities into school in order to meet the needs of kids and families? Yeah, unfortunately, I, I, I think I only heard about a third of that question, but I think, uh, just give me a thumbs up if I've got this right, um, that you're asking me what's, what all schools need to do for, for the rest of the year to kind of meet parents, okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I, I don't have a good answer because I don't think we know. Um, and I think we need to be realistic about this. I mean, we talked about this some earlier. Uh, I, I don't think we have the ability to assume that, you know, uh, or there's lots of different scenarios, right? The four basic ones, everything's going to be normal in September. We're going to have a blended scenario in, in um, September. We're going to have an online only um, a scenario. In, or we're going to have one of those three and then something happens and we go back to lockdown. Um, on the one hand, it's easy to say, well, schools have to be prepared for all of those eventualities, and that's probably true. Um, but I hate to be, and, and, and I don't want to conclude on a dour note, but, but you brought it on yourself by asking me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, let's, let's be really clear that you know, for, the, for, the, for the, the population that I've worked with in my entire career, you know, low-income kids of color uh, in places like Harlem and the South Bronx, we're not that damn good at this, right? Under the best of conditions, four out of five low-income kids of color are not reading at proficiency, according to NAEP, by eighth grade. So we are, we are right now, today, under the best conditions, failing four out of five um, low-income kids of color. Uh, that's, 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 there's no reason to think that we're going to suddenly get better at this under these uncertain conditions. Mm -hmm. um, but look, I, I, I would hope what this would mean is that we get serious about, okay, here I am promoting my own ideas, that we really get serious about um, you know, curriculum, about learning, about pedagogy, about what happens in the classroom as opposed to all these things that happen outside the classroom. Um, but I, I, I think that also argues for trying to return to as normal a setting as possible, as, as, or as quickly as possible. Um, because again, we're not that good at delivering quality instruction under ideal circumstances 
I just see no reason to be optimistic we're going to get suddenly good at it under under these kind of um, uncertain circumstances. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. I, I think that's fair. Good good answer, Robert. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So I, think... I wish I had a better one, but. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think we should, you know, wrap it up. It's, you know, been well over an hour now. And uh, I just want to remind all the listeners that uh, we will be selecting a random uh, listener to to get a copy of Robert Pendecio's book, How the Other Half Learns. And uh, we will announce who the winner is on Facebook and Twitter uh, for, for the listeners. And we'll send you a, a copy of the book Um so, uh, yeah, thanks for everyone for watching. And I, I will share uh, a link to the book again in the comments. And then also Robert's uh, you know, Twitter so that you can go follow him on, on social media uh, and, and maybe, maybe uh, tweet at him so that he can respond to any of your questions that maybe we didn't get, get time to answer today. But, uh, yeah, thanks, everyone, for coming. And, um, Robert, do you have any quick last last second takeaways that are, are just where, where people can find your, your work besides the book. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm hard to miss, uh, um, on Twitter, uh, our Pondicio on Facebook, all my DMS are open and whatnot. So you can, you know, DM me and yell at me and call me bad names. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Robert. This has been great. We really appreciate it. Sorry for the glitches, but I appreciate your patience. Thanks. No problem. Time. Good to have you. All right. Thank you so much, Robert. Have a good one, everybody. Thank you for listening. You can find EFI online at efinstitute.org, on Twitter at EF underscore Institute, and on Facebook at Educational Freedom Institute.